So tonight I want to um, follow on from Guy's talk last night about karma and particularly explore the quality, the mental factor of intention. Expand on that because it is such an important concept in our practice and certainly in our lives. And to uh, define, talk about what I call the three kinds of intention or the three levels of intention because in this area, as in many others, we can use the English language somewhat sloppily and use this word intention to mean very different qualities of mind and heart. Um, as Guy said last night, this factor of intention is important, incredibly important in the Buddha's teachings and the Tibetan, in the Tibetan lineage, they say that everything rests on the tip of intention. This is fulcrum from which all of our life and practice unfolds. And so intention shapes how we respond to the world and our actions in the world. So incredibly important. Many of you may have heard this prayer that expresses the wish for uh, guidance in intention. Not a Buddhist prayer, but uh, I think you'll relate. Dear Lord, so far today I've done all right. I haven't gossiped, haven't lost my temper, haven't been greedy, grumpy, nasty, selfish, or overindulgent. And I'm really glad about that. But in a few minutes, Lord, I'm going to get out of bed. And from then on, I'm going to need a lot more help. So this is talking about how we all need to shape and guide our lives through the quality of intention. And one of the best supports for us to do that is to cultivate the factor of mindfulness. As we bring more mindfulness to our experience and know what's happening in the moment, it creates this almost, you could say, like a space, a gap in the moment where we have the possibility of a different response or a wiser response, of a wise choice in how to respond instead of being always running on this automatic pilot that we so often are. And so we talk about intention shaping the mind stream and therefore karma, as Guy spoke about last night. And the Buddha talked about how we shape our mind through intentions. It says, whatever one frequently dwells and thinks on, that will become the inclination of the mind. So there's a feedback loop happening here. If we dwell on something, if we have a lot of intention towards something, it tends to develop, and then that feedback loop just keeps going and becomes, it sh actually shapes the mind. That will become the inclination of the mind. So mindfulness, clear seeing, offers a different possibility the possibility of this wise response. So we train to notice our direct experience. This is what we do over and over again. So we're not just running on automatic pilot out of our conditioned habitual habits and responses, but actually starting to see what leads to suffering, what leads to happiness, what are skillful intentions or motivations, what are unskillful ones, what leads to benefit for ourselves and others, and what leads to harm for self and others. So we're doing this over and over again. And through this practice, we can see we can literally change. 
the habits of the mind, the habits of the heart. Perhaps you've already noticed that in this month of practice so far. The other thing we do with mindfulness is to deconstruct experience. What can seem so complicated and confusing and even overwhelming when we slow down with mindfulness and actually see what's happening here where, uh, through the different lenses that we've offered as practices, RAIN, the acronym, where we look at four different aspects of what's happening, recognize, accept, get intimate with, not identify with. We look at the six sense doors and see there's just these six processes flowing through and changing through the lens of the aggregates that Andrea spoke about, dependent origination, Guy was talking about, the three characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactory, not-self. Again, all these lists, but all of their pointing is to this same end, bringing clear-seeing wisdom to experience, to see its constructed, conditioned nature, the fact that it's a process. This is what I was talking about in the talk on the fourth foundation of mindfulness. We see how these processes work. With this understanding, we can then begin to actually respond more wisely, make wiser choices. Because it's only when something is brought into the light of mindfulness, into the light of clear seeing, that the process of transformation can begin to happen and we can begin to work skillfully. So these three kinds of intention that I want to talk about operate on different time frames. The first, the kind of most uh, immediate, is chetana. And it's a Pali word that we usually translate as intention, and in this case, chetana is this moment-to-moment intention that's happening all the time. As Guy said, it's a universal mental factor. So it's always there in every moment. The next level is what we call aditana, And that's usually translated as determination or resolve, resolution. And it's what shapes our moment-to-moment intentions. And then the biggest um, level is what's called samma-sankapa, wise intention. And this is the second path factor in the Noble Eightfold Path after wise or right view wise or right view, the view of wisdom, clear seeing, a shorthand would be the understanding the Four Noble Truths, feeds and informs samasankapa, wise intention. So they feed back into each other. In wise intention, the second path factor, there are three wise intentions. The intention towards renunciation, non-ill will and harmlessness. So again, subsets of lists in this amazing map that the Buddha has created. And so all of these different intentions feed into and inform each other on these different time levels. Um, And they really, I see, form a kind of triangle. And it's said that triangles are especially stable, right? More stable than a a four-legged chair, say. So this... this, um, understanding of how these different levels of intention work, working with them skillfully, I think, gives us a really strong foundation for our spiritual practice. So the first of these, chetana, intention or volition, is another word we'll sometimes use. And this is kind of just that simple urge to do. 
urge to stand up, to sit down, to gesture, um, in the moment intentions that move the body and the mind. Uh, Movements of thought, of speech, of body are all shaped by this factor. And again, as Guy talked about last night, the Buddha changed the understanding of what karma is from just action to intentional action, volitional action. And so, you know, it said that if you do something without an intention to harm, say you're walking in the dark and you step on an ant or something, it said not to have a karmic imprint because there was an intention. But if you do things with intent, that has this um, feedback process of karma that evolves out of that. But we've really got to see that this, oh, I didn't mean it, isn't a get out of free, get out of jail free card. Because we can sometimes act without an intention towards harm, but we do cause harm. And so we've really got to recognize that there can be impact um, as well as intention or unintended impacts, especially as we're um, living and working in more diverse communities with people from different backgrounds, different races, different gender identities, sexual orientations, economic background, just that sometimes misunderstanding or misconnection with each other can cause real harm even though there was an intended harm. And part of our practice then is the response to that. If we get the feedback that actions of body, speech, or mind have caused some kind of harm or hurt to another, how we respond to that is where intention comes into play in this feedback loop. So it's really important that we don't use this uh, teaching on karma to say, well, I didn't mean it, therefore it's okay. It really is an invitation to look more closely at our intentions because there are always, until we're enlightened, Guy said also last night, mixed intentions, mixed motivations. Often our intentions are driven by unconscious biases. You know, and I've seen this so much as we've worked here at Spirit Rock to be a welcoming and open community that things like institutional racism, where just the way we do things can feel unwelcoming to people. And it doesn't uh, serve us to just say, well, it's worked in the past, or this is how we've always done things. It should be okay for everyone. That's not true. And we really need to recognize that as individuals and as representatives of organizations and institutions, that we need to bring our mindfulness into every facet of how we operate, communicate, relate to everyone who comes here. So this work needs a lot of humility and sensitivity and certainly compassion to actually enlarge our capacity in this area and really realize you know, what our intentions are and how to be as open and welcoming and kind and and, uh, understanding um, as we might be. So this is a big area of learning for me individually, for us collectively in our communities, is what's actually going on in any interaction that we have and what's the, 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 the great, what's for the greatest good, actually recognizing 
how we can cause harm, especially if we happen to be in whatever form of dominant or privileged uh, relationship with others, whatever that might look like. And often that's unconscious. We don't realize that we have that kind of privilege. So working with intention on this level really requires a lot of sensitivity, a lot of nuance and understanding, both in our own conditioning and um, ways we respond, and also to really recognize when there's been harm or impact upon others um, that we can then respond to and learn from, grow with. So really important uh, place to practice with. Because as we've said, this intention is happening all the time. Nothing happens without a preceding intention. I mean, it gets so complicated. I've, I've read in neuroscience, they're tracking that we're actually making decisions three seconds before, I don't know if that's the time, milliseconds or whatever, before we actually make the movement. These patterns are so deeply conditioned that we're just often acting, even as we think, you know, we're the decider, it's all already been decided by these unconscious patterns and, and biases that we might have. So these intentions are happening all the time. Most of the time we just don't realize it. As I said, we're on automatic pilot responding with this uh, out of habit. With mindfulness, this can start to shift. And this is huge. This is so key for our capacity to actually wake up, to be more free and cause less suffering. So as I said, from the simplest movements of body to gesture, to reach, to step, to stand, to sit, to um, much larger intentions. These are happening all the time and influencing us. So it's happening whether we recognize it or not. The instruction here is recognize it as best we can. Recognize that intention is happening and it's influencing us whether we're aware of it or not. So to our own advantage, benefit and the benefit of others if we recognize it. You might remember Bonnie in her talk on the hindrances those many weeks ago, talked about the hindrances and what do they motivate us to do? How do they shape our responses and our actions? Because the hindrances do move us. They move us to reach or push away or fidget or fall asleep. And this is part of noticing intention. So I I think it's really an interesting place to explore in this moment-to-moment intention, especially what happens well, not especially, but just one place you can explore, is when the mind kind of collapses. You've been doing something, it's been okay, and then you just give up. It's really clear to see in the standing meditation that I, again, led us on many weeks ago, how we can be standing, it can be okay, and then all of a sudden we're sitting and don't even realize we made the intention, but something just gives up in that moment-to-moment intention And without realizing it, we've collapsed. It can be the same if we're sitting and we feel very calm, very collected. Maybe the bell rings and we stay sitting. And then at some point, we decide to get up. And again, I'm not saying this to judge why we do or don't get up, just to be really curious what fuels that intention. Maybe you've sat through a whole walking period, but you hear the bell and you know, "Uh uh-oh, unless I get up now... (laughs) I'm kind of in here for another 45 minutes. What informs that decision? 
And again, I'm not saying you should or shouldn't, but just to really track these. This can be really interesting and revealing. So, as I said in the fourth foundation of mindfulness, part of the practice is, what was that preceding mind moment that led to the action or not? Was it, you know, was it really unbearable? Did I really need to collapse or, or, or stand up and move? It's an exploration that we can learn so much from. So this moment-to-moment mindfulness, really interesting to explore in kind of neutral places, but also in these more complex areas. The next level of intention, aditana, resolution, determination, it's one of the paramis. And I spoke the other night about the parami of patience and how valuable it is. Determination is said to be the engine of the paramis, because unless we have determination to develop in any particular way, the other ones won't get developed. So determination is said to be key, key to the development of metta, of generosity, of equanimity or renunciation. So this quality of determination or resolve, really setting something in motion out of intention, uh, it, it, it has a flavor of endurance, of seeing things through. And so all of us began this retreat, came on this retreat with that kind of intention. Something got you here, was kindled all the many months ago when you registered and kept through as the different deadlines passed for when you could get your money back. And you're like, $200, is that worth changing? No, I'm still in. 500, I don't know what the figures are, I'm making these up, but $500, okay, I better be really committed now because there's a point of no return where it's like, no money back. It's like, okay, I'm here. That's determination that just says, I'm continuing. I'm making this commitment. And Bhikkhu Bodhi, that great scholar and teacher, says there are only two, someone may have said this already, but it's so good, I like it. There are only two things you need to be successful on this path, right? And as soon as you say something like that, it's like a book title, you know, the two steps to happiness or whatever. Two things you need to be successful. You're listening, right? to start and keep going. And the keeping going is this aditana, determination. And so all of us are on this kind of hero, heroines, mythical quest, this spiritual journey. This retreat in and of itself is a journey of that archetypal kind of nature where we set out on our quest. And we always are reminding, you know, don't have any big ambition, any goal, any intention of what might, should happen. But unless you had some idea, right, you wouldn't put yourself through this, that there would be some benefit, some pot of gold at the end of this rainbow. You wouldn't be still sitting here, right? So there's some idea, but we don't really know, but it keeps us going. And what happens just like any archetypal journey, we're tested again and again. Do you really want to do this? Do you have what it takes? Can you keep going? Can you do another sitting, another walking? This is uh, the quality of aditana, of just keeping going. And what we see, and I don't know if you know this yet, but once the Dharma hook gets in, and if you're here on a month or two retreat, it's gotten in, it's very hard to unhook. It's like the door of wisdom is opened and you're looking in. Do you want to close that again? It would 
Some people do. They choose, they just say, no, that's too hard, too much. I'm just going back to whatever it was before or some different path. But for most of us, we, we're here because of this quality, this faith, this trust that uh, Bonnie spoke about the other night. I can remember for myself, I did my first retreat in the early 80s. I was in my mid-20s and I was totally clueless about meditation, about what it involved. Someone just was living in India at the time, traveling in India, and someone just said, I was trying to learn meditation from a book, actually. It was Jack's, what was then called Living Buddhist Masters. He had to change it to Recently Dead Buddhist Masters because they all kind of <laughs> passed away. But I was literally reading the Mahasi Sayadaw section, you know, lifting, moving, placing, and trying to teach myself meditation. It wasn't working too well. So someone said, if you want to learn meditation, oh, and I was living in McLeod Gunge. There was a lot of Tibetan teachings, but it was too complicated for me, all these empowerments and practices. They said, go to Goenka Retreat. That's where you'll learn meditation. So I did. I went to a retreat with S.N. Goenka in India. It was at a, a, a center they were just developing in Jaipur. It's a whole story about how I even found out where, you know, there was no website back then about how I found out how, where that was or how to get there. But anyway, I did make it there. It was this place they were just setting up, so it was very rough conditions, you know, the basics taken care of, but I just, to sit on, I had a towel, you know, there was no comfy cushions and zabatons, and I'd never meditated before, and if you know a Goenka retreat's a few days in, they have vow hours, where you vow not to move your legs or your hands, your body, for an hour. Most of the time, I was just in incredible pain, you know, waiting for the click of the microphone before he started chanting at the end of the sitting. <laughs> And I have no recollection of what the teachings were, but something, <laughs> literally. Actually, at the, end, at the end of the retreat, I was there with a couple of friends, and one of them talked about, you know, mindfulness while he was walking or eating. I'm like, really? We were meant to do that? I didn't quite catch that. So I had a lot to learn. But I was so inspired, and what I was inspired by was the possibility of not causing suffering. There was actually, that there was actually a path of practice that I could undertake, I didn't have a clue what it was, but someone was saying it was possible, that might lead to that. It was just uh, mind-boggling for me, and I was so inspired by that practice. Um, I started making choices in my life about how could I stay connected to the Dharma and Dharma people. So at that time I was in India traveling and living in McLeod. I went and sat a retreat with Christopher Titmus, that one he does every year in Bodh Gaya, and you know, really thought I'd found my teacher because hearing the Dharma through a, a Westerner and, in, and with Western uh, stories and experiences really resonated with me. Uh, uh, such a profound retreat. He played Bruce Springsteen at the end. It was like we're all vibrating, you know, in India to hear <laughs> Bruce Springsteen. It was wild. But it really, you know, it just reinforced my commitment and my connection. So I just kept looking for that. I did lots of things. I backpacked and tra uh, trekked through um, India and Kashmir and Ladakh and Zanskar and through Nepal and Pakistan, all kinds of adventures, but finally landed in England where, you know, I, I didn't know anyone really there. I was just on my own. Um, I'd actually, in India, I'd been with this boyfriend. He nearly died a couple of times. I'd gotten really sick, all of these adventures. Um, 
landed in England, and one of the things I did was write to what was then East Farmhouse, which was the uh, retreat center that Christopher and Christina Feldman had founded, and said, can I come on a retreat? And again, at that point, no website, no email, no text. I wrote a letter, and I was getting my mail at the Poster Restante. How old do you have to be before you know what that is? I've taken 40 or more, probably. To Poster Restante was a place where they collected your mail and held it for you until you, you know, came to collect it. I was getting mine at St. Paul's in London, I remember. So I wrote this letter and said, I'd love to come on a retreat. Sometime later, I went to collect my mail, and there was a letter saying, great, there's a retreat starting this weekend. You can come. There's space. I'm like, oh, fabulous. So I, you know, f after traveling in India, traveling in England was very expensive, but I, you know, got the train to Padding, so the tube to Paddington Station, the train down to Salisbury, the bus from Salisbury out to the little village of Wiley in Wiltshire. Actually, what happened was the bus driver stopped in the middle of nowhere and said, this is your stop. I'm like, really? <laughs> it's like, there's nothing here. He said, go over that stile, follow the path. And I could see in the distance there was a church steeple. He's like, there it is. So I'm like heading off with my backpack off to this place I'd you know, never been to before, get to the village, have to ask and find out at the edge of the village is this place called East Farmhouse. I'm so relieved to get there. I walk in the driveway um, large courtyard of this old farmhouse and there's a, a young man there working on his car. I remember this so clearly. He was out there fixing the car and he kind of looked up at me arriving with my backpack and a look of consternation comes over his face and he goes, oh, are you here for the retreat? And I'm like, well, yes. You know, he goes, oh, you better come inside. And I'm like, has my reputation preceded me? You know, they already said, Sally, she, no, don't let her in. You know, this is not, she's not going to get it. But anyway, I'm sort of a bit trepidation. I go in and the place is just humming. There's people doing everything, running around. And they all sort of turn and look at me and go, oh, you know, again, are you Sally? Yes, I wrote the letter. They go, all right, we do. We know, we got the letter. <laughs> you know, my heart is just kind of sinking. It's not the reception you received when you arrived here, is it? <laughs> Anyway, they say, you better sit down. I'm like, okay. And they said, well, that letter you received, which Janie Rosenfeld wrote to me, didn't have a date on it. And actually, the retreat that she said you could come to started last weekend, and it finished today, and everyone is leaving. I'm like, oh, you know, I missed the retreat. But, you know, I'm here. I'm like, it's a retreat center. I'm here. And they said, and not only that, Normally there are two managers who stay here and look after the place, but they are packing up and leaving today because their stint is finished, but the new managers haven't come, so we're turning off all the lights and everyone is leaving. <laughs> so you have to leave too. I was heartbroken. You know, it was so expensive and took so long and so much planning to get there, and it was getting later in the day, I'm in the middle of, you know, Wiltshire. I don't know where I am. I've got nowhere to go. I don't have that much money. And they're just saying you have to leave. So they say, well, sit down and have a cup of tea. You know, the universal English panacea to everything. <laughs> and then they say, while we're packing up, you know, you can make yourself, you know, comfortable, look around, put your stuff down. So, you know, I just left them and kind of dis disconstantly wandered around this beautiful house, the grounds. There's a lovely garden that slopes up to the hills in the back with fruit trees and, you know, but I'm being sent out of paradise, right? Um, 
And then after a while, they come and call me to come back in. I'm like, right now, they're going to say I actually have to go. And they sit me down again. They say, well, Sally, we've been thinking about this. We see this as a hard situation. And what we've decided is we're all going to leave, but you can stay. (laughs) And basically, they gave me the keys to the palace. So instead of being thrown out, I think it was two weeks, I was, they just let me stay there. They didn't know me from Adam. Um, you know, and they knew I'd sat with Christopher, but that's also of thousands of other people. Um, and they just gave me this whole place. They turned it over to me. And it was the most amazing time to, you know, I'd been living in, you know, very cheap accommodations in India, in England, the cheapest I could afford, dormitory rooms. And now I had this beautiful country, you know, it was a very, uh, just a farmhouse, but to me it was a palace with an Argus stove and a garden and walks and the village store and the river running through with the swans on it. It was just idyllic. So I, it was and a, such a gesture of sangha, to just take me in and, and say, here, you can stay here. We trust you with this place. Of course, I got attached. So when the people showed up who were to manage the place, I'm like, don't you need a third manager? Can't I help somehow? I'll do anything. Let me stay. Let me stay. And they said, no, we really don't. We can't afford it. We don't need it. And so I did have to leave, but I'd made these connections to these people. And I found out about managing, being on staff at this retreat center. So I put my name down on the list to be a manager. It was a pretty informal system back then. Um, And they said, we don't know when that might happen. So off I went and I traveled. I think I came back one other time and sat a retreat there. There was a retreat. Actually met up with my boyfriend, came and we sat a retreat. And then we went off traveling here, there and everywhere, traveling through Europe in the winter. It's very cheap and uncrowded, but I wouldn't recommend it. We're freezing a lot of the time. But anyway, we got to kind of almost the edge of um, Eastern, get to going to Eastern Europe. That was our next uh, destination, Czechoslovakia or somewhere. And I got the letter that says, you can come, be a manager. And I looked at Clive and I said, bye. You know, (laughs) literally. I, I can't remember what that conversation was like. I'm sure it wasn't an easy one, but I said, I've, I've, this is what I really want to do. He said, you don't want to see Prague? I'm like, no, I, I don't want to see Prague. I want to go back and be in the Dharma. And so I, I left him um, and went back and managed this retreat center, which it was just an amazing experience. It was a lot of work at that time. There were just two of us, Andrew Getz and me. Andrew has ended up living in Woodacre, so we're neighbors 30 years later. Um, we did everything. We cooked, we cleaned, we did the registration, we shopped, we did everything. Um, but it was so rewarding because I was in a Dharma community and met Dharma friends, uh, Dharma teachers. I met these very uh, wonderful people, Guy and Carol at that point. And later, you know, you know, perhaps the story there. Um, <laughs> I actually, where we met, we, I got, I, I, once I left uh, managing, we, uh, I went off traveling again, met another friend, and we were going to go to Ireland, and I got the invitation to actually go start a Dharma community in, in England, in Totnes, in, in Devon, through Christopher Titmus. And a few of us, Guy and I, were the first to start the community there. And, uh, you know, my whole life has kind of been shaped by that. So we eventually got married. We came to the U.S. in the late 80s. 
we started volunteering at Spirit Rock. He ended up getting a job in the computer industry. I ended up working full time at Spirit Rock. And, you know, my whole life has developed out of those choices of how do I stay connected to the Dharma? You know, when I was in England, how do I do that? When we came here, we both made that those decisions. We moved to Woodacre so we could be near Spirit Rock. And it's been one of the best decisions I've ever made. And my, as I said, my whole life has evolved out of that. So it really is so valuable if this practice really serves you and speaks to you and, and opens you. How do you stay aligned with the Dharma? Dharma values, Dharma people, Dharma service. It's huge. Aligning one's life with the Dhamma. I highly recommend it. So, this is Aditana, making these bigger life choices, determinations. Actually, every time you do metta practice, these are Aditanas, these are resolves. May I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I be safe. That's the form of a resolve. And I love that it's in that form. It's not an order, I am or I will or I should. It's may I. It's just this opening to possibilities, but it's creating a clear intention, excuse me, a clear direction. And so we can use this kind of aditana in our practice. May I open to this with mindfulness? May I be mindful just for this step? Or may I bring mindfulness to this meal or this period of my work meditation, this sort of invitation, this invocation, because we're going to need this clarity of intention here on retreat, but as we go out into the world. As I said, there's so many challenges, so many offshoots, so many um, distractions that we can face. So determination helps us persevere through these difficulties. Because it's not, we're going against the grain, right? You know, the Buddha talked about against the stream. He also talked about getting into the stream where we're aligning with the Dharma and going with the stream of Dharma. But we're often going against the stream of our habits, of cultural conditioning. So we need this kind of determination and perseverance to allow that to continue. And it's true today, it was true 2,600 years ago in the time of the Buddha. There are these great collections of um, Dharma verses from the Theragata as the verses of the elder monks, the Terigata, the verses of the elder nuns. This is one from the monks, the Theragata. It's too cold, it's too hot, too late in the evening. People who say this, shirking their work, and I think work here, they're translating bhavana or development, meaning their practice. The moment passes them by. Whoever regards cold and heat as no more than grass, doing their duties won't fall away from ease. With my chest, I push through the wild grasses, spear grass, ribbon grass, and rushes, cultivating a secluded heart. So just that sense of persevering, pushing through, but the, the intention is not gaining, but this seclusion, this, this calmness of heart. And the Buddha talked about the four great resolves. There are the four resolves, the resolve for wisdom, the resolve for truth, the resolve for generosity, and the resolve for peace. 
One should not neglect wisdom. One should preserve the truth. One should cultivate generosity and should train in peace. These are the four great or wise resolves. And now the last kind of intention, the biggest picture, the biggest shaping of our intentions is samasankapa, the second path factor in the Noble Eightfold Path after right view. As I said, right view is the right view or right understanding, <coughs> excuse me, is um, understanding the Dhamma, basically, uh, often described as understanding, practicing the Four Noble Truths. And right view and right intention kind of reinforce each other. Out of right view, right intention is shaped and evolves. As we deepen in right intention, it deepens our understanding of right view. And they then go on to inform all of the other path factors. So there's a beautiful looping again happening here. And these are Dharma values to align with. When I talked about aligning one's life with the Dharma, this, these are the values that the Buddha said we should align with. And they are the values of renunciation, of non-ill will, and non-harming or harmlessness. And what's interesting, like many of the lists that we're given to shape our practice, they're framed in what we would see as the negative, non-ill will, non-harming. Even renunciation is kind of a withdrawing, letting go. But actually there's a real skillfulness to there because what the Buddha is pointing to is that it's always, always possible to act with restraint. So to, even though we might be agitated or fearful, to not act and harm someone else. So always possible. As we develop that capacity, they can then build or flower into their positive expression. So for renunciation is generosity. Instead of just letting go, we actually give away the things that we value. Non-ill will deepens into goodwill or metta, loving kindness, and harmlessness into compassion. And you can see how these are actually the wise heart's response, informed by right view, wise understanding. Pema Chodron says about this development, as long as we don't want to be honest and kind with ourselves, we will always be infants, like children. Gradually, without any agenda, except to be honest and kind, we assume responsibility for being here in this unpredictable world, in this unique moment, in this precious human body. So the first of these um, intentions is that of renunciation. And just like patience, it's not a word or a quality that has a lot of traction in our culture, in our society. But the Buddhist understanding of renunciation is not as a penance, but actually as a source of well-being, source of contentment, and really an inquiry into what is for our well-being, what really leads to our true happiness, not this momentary happiness. So share one of my uh, collection of meditation-appropriate cartoons or related cartoons. Um, this is from the series Hagar the Horrible. If you know him, he's the Viking who's always 
either propelled by desire, he's eating, or he's out fighting. So desire and aversion are his two main modes of relating. But this is uh, in the subgenre of the guru um, meditation cartoon. So in this, you know, there's a number of frames. In the first one, you see Hagar climbing a very steep mountain, laboring away. In the second frame, you see the guru, a very wise-looking sage with a long beard. They always look like this, don't they, in the top of the mountain. And Hagar says to the guru, oh, great sage, please teach me the secret of happiness. And the guru says, the sage says in return, secret of happiness, simplicity, self-restraint, and renunciation. In the fourth frame, you can see Hagar pausing and saying, is there anyone else up here I can talk to? (laughs) Didn't like that as a solution. We don't generally. Even the Buddha said when he first thought about renunciation, my heart didn't leap up at the thought of renunciation. But once I truly started to understand its power, then my heart did leap up. And so we have to look, as I said, not what's for immediate pleasure, but long-term well-being. Uh, I, I read this story a while ago in, in Parade magazine, um, which often has kind of stories about <clears throat> people making uh, generosity and, and, and good, good, good-hearted stories. And this one was entitled, Why We Gave Away Our Home. And it's a story of a very typical middle-class American family, parents and a few kids, um, who built their dream house. And in their dream house, everyone had their own space, their own bedroom, and then the TV room, and the rec room, and the basement, and the living room, and all of this space, you know, what everyone in America supposedly wants. But what happened was they lost touch with each other. They were so disconnected. And the daughter especially, once she started to look a bit beyond their neighborhood, got really upset by the disparities between what they as a family had and what so many other people had or didn't have. And so the mother challenged her and said, what are you willing to sacrifice? Would you give up your house, your room? And Hannah, the daughter, said yes to both. And it started a whole conversation as a family about their values and what they would give up. They decided to sell their home, give all the money to charity, and move to a house that was half its size. So it took a year for them to do that, to, just, to sell the house and decide what to do with the money. And they learned so much about each other. They grew so close as a family. And they chose the Hunger Project, a U.S.-based nonprofit that works with villages in Africa, Asia, and South America and helps them move from poverty to self-reliance. They became more connected, more loving, and more understanding of each other, and they said it was the best move they ever made. Bhikkhu Bodhi says this about renunciation. Real renunciation is not a matter of compelling ourselves to give up things still inwardly cherished, but changing our perspective on them so that they no longer bind us. So it's not a a cold or aversive pushing away, but really a shifting in values, shifting in how we understand what's true, our our real benefit. Again, from the Buddha, whosoever has turned to renunciation, turned to detachment of the mind, is filled with all-embracing love and freed from the thirst of becoming. 
love and contentment is what results. So for those of you who are going home after this month of practice and those when you go home after two months, you spent a month or more living in a very simple room, eating only what's been offered with just the clothes you brought with you, yet everything taken care of. So interesting to see when you go home, what do you pick up again? What's necessary? What's needed? And again, as lay people, we have lots of choices, and it's not about, you know, sackcloth and ashes, but really this <laughs> intentional looking at what, what do we need, what's for our best benefit. And it's a great time to explore that in this going home process. The second of the wise intentions is for non-ill will in its positive form, goodwill or metta. And as I said, starts from not this intention not to act out of ill will, even if you are agitated, angry, upset, to see that it's possible to have restraint and not act in ways that cause harm to others. Because we see we can't force these kindly feelings of metta, but we can act, hold back and act out of restraint. Once we do that, once we learn to train in that way, then the metta can really be an active force in our life. And I often feel we should change the definition of metta just to kindness. We often say loving kindness, but it adds a kind of little push to how big and grand it should be. But it's just kindness. It's just acceptance. But there's that can seem a little pedestrian. You know, there's no Nobel Prize for kindness, right? But it's such an important value, and, and it's underestimated, because true kindness brings, like patience does, so many good qualities with it, of caring, of generosity, of emptiness, of e- empathy, sorry, of renunciation and selflessness. If you spent this retreat just learning to be kind to yourself and to others, it would be time well spent because that would transform how you were in the world. So kind to yourself, kind to others, kind to all beings, kind to the worms. I don't seem to be able to get through a talk without talking about our dear friends, <laughs> the worms, but they're every, in this rain, they were everywhere, right? But last night, coming out of the talk, after a few dry days, I always like to walk out into the courtyard here, a little bit out, and just look at the sky, see what's happening. Last night it was beautiful, clear, bright stars. And I looked down, and there in the middle of this dry expanse was a worm, a little desiccated worm. I'm like, oh no, (laughs) didn't get saved. So I went down, picked up, it was still alive. Actually, because it was a little dry, it didn't wriggle as much. I could pick it up, but I'd been given instructions on saving worms from my mentioning of them from someone here, and they said you have to dehydrate, rehydrate them. So I didn't have anything, so I was (laughs) spitting on this worm, and I see Bonnie over there looking at me, and she's going, what are you doing? And I went and put the worm on the grass, and I came in later uh, into the room, and she said, were you kissing it? What were you No, I just spit on them. I haven't quite got to kissing the worms yet. I do care about them. But it comes out of the caring, right? We can't force the love. You've seen that in metta. You can sit and say, may I be loving and happy and kind, 
but it, it doesn't happen unless there's the caring there. But we can continue to incline the mind and heart, and that has a power that's really invaluable, really a strong training. And as I said, I think in my other talk, we can choose kindness. Remember the Dalai Lama? Be kind when alway, whenever possible, and it's always possible. It's always possible if we find that place of caring. The last of these uh, intentions is that of harmlessness. And this is the, the beautiful practice of ahimsa, non-harming, which is shaped by the practice of, of training with the precepts, these guidelines of non-harming. And these guidelines guide our lives, our relationships, our mind states, and our communities. What a, what a blessed world it would be if everyone lived even by one of these precepts. We've chanted them regularly, so the precepts of not killing, of not stealing, of not harming ourselves or others through our sexuality. That's the lay precept. Here on retreat, we take the celibacy one. The precept of a wise speech, of not harming through speech, through lying or gossip or slander, and then not clouding the mind with drugs and alcohol. And again, they're acts of restraint, of renunciation, of non-harming. They can also be framed in a positive way where non-harming becomes compassion, not stealing, generosity. Care with our sexual energy is loving-kindness, non-attached love. Abstaining from wrong speech is wise speech, kind speech. And not indulging in, in intoxicants is clarity and wisdom. The Dalai Lama said, I have found that the greatest degree of inner tranquility comes from the development of love and compassion. The more we care for the happiness of others, the greater is our own sense of well-being. Cultivating a close, warm-hearted feeling for others automatically puts the mind at ease. It is the ultimate source of success in life. So it's said that as we act in this way of non-harming, we are given great gifts. Um, we give ourselves the gift of freedom from remorse. We give others the gift of fearlessness. They don't have to fear us. And you've probably seen, you know, in the memories that come up on retreat, um, it's hard for the mind to settle if we're plagued by feelings of guilt or shame, judgment. And that to actually transform that remorse can actually be a healthy or skillful reflection because we're in remorse we're saying we're willing to learn from what what happened we're not blaming ourselves but blame and shame and guilt really entangle us in a sense of deficiency and hard for the mind to open so this um, these guidelines really do help us in our meditation and in our lives so again to repeat all of these three kinds, these three levels of intention are necessary for this path of practice to develop. The chetana, the moment-to-moment -moment intention that guides this immediate action. Aditana is this, uh, the engine that, that, that shapes to what end, what are we intending towards. And then the biggest picture, samasankapa, which is the alignment with the dharma, that we can use that to shape our aditana. How do we stay in alignment with um, the, the Dhamma? And they're all feeding and supporting each other, all informing each other. 
but all conditioned impersonal processes. Again, there's no self, no one who's doing the deciding, but we're just putting in motion these different processes. As Sharon Salzberg says, by making an effort to notice our intentions with honesty and clarity, we gain a great deal of freedom. If we take the time to pay quiet attention, perhaps through meditation or contemplation, we may develop a completely different understanding of why we do the things we do and a new perspective on how to trust that we've done the best we can. When we develop the habit of noticing our intentions, we have a much better compass with which to navigate our lives. We learn to cast a glance at our motivation before we speak or act, which frees us to live the lives we want. Really talking about this bringing into mindfulness the intention, we can then align with our values and live the life we want. Many of you have probably seen the movie Groundhog Day, that covert Buddhist movie. Um, I'm often called to reflect on it whenever I'm on a long retreat because there's a similarity in our days here that can't help bring, but bring to mind that movie where, if you don't know it, this character, a weather forecaster, Bill Murray, finds himself living in this loop of repeating the same winter day over and over again. And he tries all kinds of things to get out of that loop. He tries manipulating things. He tries gaming the system. He tries to even kill himself to get out of the loop. And he wakes up every day with the same alarm and the song that he hears. And I heard, saw an interview with Harold Ramis, who um, was the director and creator of that movie. And they said, how many times do you imagine that he went through that day, because they only show a handful in, in the, I don't know, 10, 20 in the movie. He said, I, 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 I just imagined maybe 12,000 times. That's 30 or 40 years that he imagined Bill Murray going through that day. And what was it that changed? He lived a day of selflessness, right? He went around saving people, helping people, and he loved someone selflessly. When he was able to do that in all those different areas, he woke up and the day had changed. So may that be so for you, that one day the day will change and you'll know you've learned your lesson here. So, but it starts from that moment-to-moment mindfulness, just as a drop of water shapes the rock builds these, you know, huge gorges and chasms that we see. This mindfulness really is the powerful tool that leads us to shape the intention of our actions of body, speech, and mind, and out of that, our lives. So I want to finish with a, a, a quote, a passage from Goethe, that famous German writer and poet. I have come to the frightening conclusion that I am the decisive element. It is my personal approach that creates the climate. It is my daily mood that makes the weather. I possess tremendous power to make life miserable or joyous. I can be a tool of torture or an instrument of inspiration. I can humiliate or humor, hurt or heal. 
In all situations, it is my response that decides whether a crisis is escalated or de-escalated and a person humanized or dehumanized. If we treat people as they are, we make them worse. If we treat people as they ought to be, we help them become what they are p- capable of becoming. And I would add, and what we are capable of becoming as we shape our mind with this clarity of intention and let it be formed and informed by the Dhamma and the teachings of the Dhamma. So let's just let the words settle into silence. Thank you for your attention.